You're listening to Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias. The world's locked down and travelling isn't really an option. So I thought, why not do the next best thing and talk about it? From living all over the world to working as a tour guide, I've seen some amazing places and met some great people. Each week, I'll speak to globetrotters and industry professionals about their travel bubble choices to provide you with post-lockdown inspiration and top travel tips. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias. Wherever you are in the world, a big hello to you. We are now in 59 countries, which is alright, isn't it? A couple of new countries on the list, including Panama and Iraq. So if you're listening in Panama and Iraq, hello to you. So how are you all doing? I've been uh, pretty busy lately. I've just got back from leading trips, hiking trips in Cornwall. And then that was a three-nighter and then went up to Derbyshire and did a couple of nights in Derbyshire leading a hiking trip around there, like Bakewell, Castleton area. That was really fun. But now you can't escape the podcast. We're still putting the podcast out every Wednesday. This is no exception. Thanks to everyone who got in touch about last week's episode with Vanessa. Everyone really enjoyed that one. So thanks if you sent me a message and got in touch about that. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen and if you're brand new to Travel Bubble then you can go back and choose whatever episode you like just go through pick a title that you like and jump right in pick a picture that you like the content is all evergreen and you can just pick and choose and go through all the old episodes Uh, but speaking of titles um, this week's episode episode 26 is with Ian Collins Uh, he's an Australian guy and we recorded this a few months back when he was in London. And I'd never met Ian before, but he got in touch and said, I've been to 80 countries, I've worked in 40 countries, I've got a few stories to tell, I think I'd, I think I'd be a good guest on your podcast. And he wasn't wrong. I think I really, really enjoyed this episode. We, I put it this way, I, I really like to go and meet Ian, Ian for a beer. You know when you've got a good episode, when you struggle to find a title, because you, cause you're spoiled for choice, on this episode, I could have either chose Flowers to Kim Jong-un, which obviously is the title I went for, or I could have took, I could have chosen, um, I took my mugger to the strippers, which is another tale that Ian tells. Both good titles, but I think I went for the Kim Jong-un one to spark people's interest. But you, like, like I say, you know it's going to be a good episode when that's the case. Like You don't know what title to choose from. And... Ian's lovely. I, I really, he's like I say, he's over in Indonesia now, and he said you have to come over for a beer, and I, I would like to do that. A bit of a bintang in Ubud, I'd be up for that. But before I jump into that episode and let you get stuck in, I will say that Travel Bubble is free, so whichever way you can support us will be greatly appreciated. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, like Apple, Spotify, Google. So just subscribe there. You can like us on Facebook and Instagram or you can uh, comment on our posts and share it with your friends and give us a rating. Wherever you see see the chance to give us a five-star rating, then that'll really help us. It'll go a long way. It'll take you about two seconds to do, but it really helps us with the al- algorithms and helps spread the word of Travel Bubble even more and helps grow the Travel Bubble influence and uh, helps us get the travel inspiration message across to more people. I'll be back at the end for some more Travel Bubble chat and the Travel Bubble Film Club. But for now, 
It's episode 26, Flowers to Kim Jong-un, with the wonderful Ian Collins. Hello Ian, welcome to Travel Bubble. Thanks Matty, good to be here. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Doing pretty well. Uh, Yeah, in in London, so it's been quite long and challenging here, but um, spring is sort of in the air and renewed optimism as uh, some lockdown sort of ease. So we're all looking forward to the ability to get a haircut, which looks like you might be looking forward to as well. I'm, I'm, I'm in it for the long haul now. I, <laughs> I'm going straight through now. I don't care. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm, I'm not detecting the London accent, Ian. Uh, where are you originally from? Yeah, born, born and bred in Perth in Western Australia and um, got, mum was originally from the UK, so pretty blessed to have uh, dual citizenship and came to London about six months ago to for a couple of reasons. One, from a business perspective, I had been living in Bali, which was, a got to be honest, an amazing place to be during the large part of last year. Um, but from a business and, and also a family perspective, my sister's here and her family and Thought I would come and lend some support uh, to them during during these sort of lockdowns and homeschooling and working from home and and all the challenges that that presents. So it's been quite a again it's been a, it was a long winter, but uh, to be able to be of service to my family during this time has been really rewarding and getting real quality time with two little girls who are loved to bits. Yeah, I did the same actually. I went, I moved back to like St Helens and I thought. I'll be with a family for a bit and like, I've got a nephew, young nephew and I, I lasted about six weeks and then I moved down to Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Ian, an obvious question, but um, what makes you a good guest to be on a travel show? Travel yeah. yeah, good question. Um, probably I've, I've lived in eight different cities across five continents, um, worked in over 40 countries, travelled to about, uh, I think it's about 85 now. So sort of quite worldly in that regard yeah. and sort of uh, move, move cities every couple of years. One from, a, again, work plays an influence. Um, there's some other factors there. But I just love exploring the world and, and love jumping on a plane and can't wait for the, the day when we can do it again. Um, you know, I'm just fascinated by, by different cultures, different, um, you know, human behaviour, what drives people and, um, yeah, just love really exploring different parts of the world. Most I like the off, off the sort of beaten track sort of places. Um, but yeah, just been travelling for fifteen years, yeah. uh, sort of nonstop. So, what came first? Was it like the love of travel, and then the job followed, or did you engineer this job so you could hit those countries and be travelling with work? Yeah, it was a, it was a bit of a default, really. Um, we we didn't have too many. Like my mum's from the UK, so we a couple of early childhood trips. We came back to back to the UK, um, and very few, very few real trips. Uh, other than I moved to when all of my mates were coming to to London, sort of a rite of passage for Australians to to come and do the London thing and live with fifteen other people in some place in Earl's Court, and yeah. it, it just never really appealed to me at the time. And I always like to do things a bit different, so I actually moved to Canada for a year. And I loved it, but I was never in a position then to continue the travel until I started working. Uh, I started working in the oil and gas industry, and started to specialise 
uh, in a particular field uh, known as uh, human and organizational performance and, and became really good at it. And as a consultant, it really gave me the opportunity to then um, not just get sort of stuck on one project, but bounce around different industries and different projects all over the world. And it was that's what really started the love affair for travel. Uh, my first real international assignment was actually in Libya. And it was a pretty, during the times of Gaddafi and, and I was in preparation uh, for this trip, you know, I was doing a lot of reading and trying to understand the culture and, and hearing some, you know, some interesting sort of tales about what's, what was going on there. And, you know, it was what, what, what was actually occurring on the ground versus what I'd read, particularly in Western media, was just so different. And it really opened my eyes in, in one regard and then also created this thirst for if I'm going to really understand somewhere, I want to go there. I don't want to read about it. So um, I just, yeah, I just really wanted to see more and more and more. Um, and yeah, like I said, it's just been traveling the world really ever since then. The job certainly lent itself to that, being a consultant. Um, and there are certain times that I've moved from, uh, you know, maybe a tax reason um, and, and being in places that, that are more uh, favorable in that regard. But yeah. You know, I haven't been limited in terms of where I've lived, which is it's lucky in one hand, but um, you know, I've also created that too. Yeah. Um, like, it, it really frustrates me when people say, oh, you're very lucky. Like, oh, you, you're so lucky. Like, not really, no. It's not as if, like, we won the lottery or yeah. we've, like, you engineer your situation to, like, suit your lifestyle, which is, like, your love of travel. And and you've created that that job and your, like, that position so you can like live in all those places and go to all those places. Yeah, exactly. Um, so where are some of the places you've actually lived then? Some of the cities and countries you've lived? Yeah. Well, being, being Australian, so I grew up in Perth, but I'd spent a few years in Melbourne as well, which I love. Um, and then it was, there was a particular political decision that was made to, to tax. I was working internationally at the time, still living in Australia. And then they introduced new tax laws and I was recently married um, and we thought, why don't we, I had been working in Denmark, flying Melbourne, Copenhagen every three weeks. And we thought, <laughs> us. Um, let's, let's, why don't we move to Spain? And so we went and lived in Barcelona for a while. Um, and that was amazing. It was a real, real eye opener and just the culture of Europe. Just, I just fell in love with. Um, but my wife was South African and, and we thought, well, let's, why don't we go back to, let's go back to South Africa. Um, and I absolutely fell in love with the place and, and really didn't want to leave. So I lived in Cape Town for a while. Uh, I had lived in Vancouver, so that, that, you know, when I was 21 and had yeah. lived there, love Vancouver is a beautiful city. Um, and then after a while the business changed and, and we relocated headquarters to Singapore and, and that made sense at the time. So when I lived in Singapore for a while, it's um, again, another beautiful city. It, it's also it can be a little bit stale as well so uh eventually uh moved to bali and absolutely relished my time in bali just a, a really magical place and then again recently just just came came to london so this will be based for a while here so yeah. bouncing around you know, I think, you know five continents so far so who knows what happens next yeah well like did you start off like the mining side of things ian is that is that correct yeah it was it was uh, it was a case of 
I'd, I'd never, I'd, I didn't come from that sort of background. In fact, my whole family's uh, either owned or or became mechanics here. They, they own service stations or were in that field, and that gene sort of skipped me. So I'd never done anything sort of mechanical in my life. And it was just a case of West Australia at the time was going through this big mineral boom and there was opportunity to go into the mines and, and earn quick money. And that appealed to me at the time. And so I went out there. My first job was as a driller's offsider on a diamond drilling operation. And it took me about a week to figure out we weren't actually drilling for diamonds. It was an actual reference to the drill bit that we were using. That sort of <laughs> highlights how, how naive I was. But I, I, I started to really enjoy it. I, I loved the, you know, I, I enjoyed the work. It was long days, but it was, I got to see parts of Western Australia I just, I never knew. And it was just magic country uh, up north in the, in the Pilbara and the Kimberley regions. And I also loved the, you know, making money and time off. And eventually it got to a point where I was working, you know, sort of way too much and not having enough time off to really enjoy it. And the, the world of uh, offshore oil and gas presented an opportunity to, so whatever you work on a rig, you have off. So if you work three weeks on, you have three weeks off, month on, month off, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that was really appealing. And so I got a job on a offshore drilling rig, again, started at the bottom. And uh, the first job was uh, to go and join the rig up in Singapore and working in the shipyards there. I, had, I, had, I was working on the drilling crews and... I witnessed an event where a, a young guy got killed, not on our rig, but on the, the vessel next door. And it really impacted me in terms of um, it was it was it was just like, oh, let's just get another person. And when I went to share with my guys about it, I was like, you know, I just someone just died next door. Rather than there being any sort of shock, um, people just started recounting their death stories in the industry and and this really hit home for me. So I, I pivoted and got more into the safety side of things and have just niched and niched and specialised in this uh, in human error reduction, uh, for lack of a better term for it, basically helping understand how and why people make mistakes and helping companies sort of design their systems that reduce the likelihood for error, particularly when the errors can be catastrophic, all of which was sort of born, the science developed after some pretty significant events like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. So, um, you know, I worked my butt off to, to get to a point where, you know, specialise in this particular field uh, and then get to travel uh, as a result of it. Now, COVID sort of flipped everything upside down and can't do that so much anymore. So it's much more virtual delivery. But I was just reflecting on it the other day, even though I'm not physically there, you know, I'm, I'm speaking to people in all over the world and, and still get that, you know, that, that appreciation for all the different um, people and their backgrounds and their culture just in a different way. Yeah, yeah. So what sort of, like, industries do you specialise in then? Like, who are you who are you working with? Like you said, you mentioned, like, nuclear there, or is it, like, en- engineering firms and mining firms? Or yeah, it's, it, it's, 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 it's anyone, really, because uh, there's there's risk, just often not times physical risk, but I, I tend to to specialise in those heavy industries, wherever, wherever something can blow up or melt down or a plane fall out of the sky. So, yeah, where the, the consequences can be catastrophic. So, um, yeah, mining, oil and gas, nuclear, aviation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I, I used to live in Bangkok and you'd see a lot of 
um, a lot of people who worked on like offshore or even mining in Australia and they'd like have three weeks on or a month month off and they fly back to Bangkok and spend the spend the month off and having a yep. good time and, like, seen <laughs> and, and living a very good lifestyle as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and it is a good lifestyle. It, it just comes at a, at, at a cost. So the time away, um, you know, certainly impacted, you know, just, uh, yeah, it had an impact on my on my marriage and, yeah. you know, unfortunately that didn't survive long-term and, and it's a big impact on, on mental health, um, you know, working those long periods away. And there's a lot of focus in, in those sort of industries to really help the people um, live a more balanced, healthier life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, is that one of the things that you like promote now, like, like, like mental health and like well-being over chasing the money? Yeah, oh, very much so. You know, I'm more about I'm more about balance now, and I've certainly gone through periods where I've worked myself to exhaustion and 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 you know had breakdowns because of it, where my yeah. body just said no, nah, no more, and and the travel became pretty again as much as i enjoy it you know one year i'd sort of added up all the hours i'd spent in a plane or at the airport and and it cumulatively came to over a month so a month of my year was spent in the sky somewhere Um, and and at one point i had i was gold on gold frequent flyer with five different airlines it was it was mental um and that catches up to you after a period of time and in fact it was i was in italy on holiday about to go sailing uh, around the med and my body just said no nah, I've had enough and that was it I sort of had to rela- you know go I flew back to London and just needed to calm down yeah, and bring yeah, just, balance to my life and that yeah. and that's largely what prompted the move to to Bali to to really get that balance back nice okay mm. so we touched on that a bit earlier like you said you used to go to the UK for holidays because your mum was from there what were your like other like experiences of travel like growing up um as, as a youngster what like going to perth was it driving around and oh um, i don't know yeah perth's an interesting place it's the most isolated capital city in the world and you know we had a very happy childhood we just we just didn't holiday a lot and and my big holiday every year was you know going down to a place called dunsborough a few hours south of perth just this beautiful part of the world and just going to the beach every day and and just relaxing it was just magic i used to really relish that time of year but apart from that it was it was very few and far between um certainly didn't leave western australia until i really started traveling later in life so yeah a couple of trips to the uk um but that was it really cool well Mm. you know i think you're certainly qualified to come on a travel show i think you've got some good tales so i'm interested to hear your travel bubble choices so i might jump into that then yeah, let's do it. Um, what would be your travel bubble destination number one? Number one. So I've looked at this. It actually coming up with this, I found more challenging than I initially thought it would be. I thought I thought it, with all the places I've been, it'd be easy to to think about. Um, you know, where I'd want to keep going for the rest of my life. But I took a slightly different approach and looked at this more from a uh, sort of a tax perspective. And and there's a lifestyle that I ascribe to uh, called the perpetual traveler lifestyle, which is certainly with digital nomads becoming more and more popular. 
where you've got basically five flags. Uh, first one being your passport, you know, where, where, where's your passport? And then the second one, where's your legal residence? Uh, the third one being, where's your business base? Uh, fourth one, where's your asset haven? And the fifth one is, is your playground. So I've, I've tried to look at it from those perspectives. Uh, if I was to really set this up, where would I want that to be? So obviously passport Australian and I've also got British, but in terms of where I'd want to live, my, my number one uh, country for the travel bubble is Indonesia. Okay. Great. Mm. Now I like I like that perspective. Like you you're thinking through it logically rather than just going, Oh, that's a mad country. This is an interesting country, so that's great. Yeah. Um so why Indonesia? Indonesia, I, I just think, particularly Bali, um, you know, it's known as the the island of the gods. And and for me it was just a such a special time. I I lived there for two years. And yeah, I was in and out a lot, but it was, um, you know, with all the different travel, but it was such a, a nurturing sort of environment to, to come back to every time. And um, yeah, I, I just, I just absolutely love the place The the Balinese people, I think are some of the most beautiful in the world. Uh, having experienced a lot of cultures, I think the Balinese, there's just something so special and unique and magical about them. And for them, it's all about community and their connection with with nature. And I think in the West, we 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 tend to lose that so much. You know, we're we're so connected in terms of technology and so on. But I don't think there's ever been a period where we've been so isolated. And this pandemic certainly um, you know emphasised that more and more. Where the Balinese just have this connection to community, they're always going back, and I just learned a lot from them in in terms of building that community and i've whilst i've experienced communities all over the world it was it was sort of my the people that i really got to get got to know and to love and adore you know in bali that that i'll always carry with me just so many really beautiful special people um calling at home yeah so do you think like that the balinese people help influence your choice to go and go back to london and spend time with your family like like you realise the importance of that family in the community? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the, I, by nature, I do a lot of work looking at our different personalities and, and we developed a personality instrument known as, known as the E-Colours. And um, my personality by nature is, is very supportive. It's I love helping and supporting people. So I could just, whilst I was loving living in Bali, I just had this, I felt this calling to to support. This is where my support's most needed right now. And actually when I was I was toying with this idea, I was really struggling with it. I grappled with it for a long time. I went and saw this oracle. Um, you know, there's a lot of it's a lot of magical sort of shaman type people um, in Bali. And they're connected to the spirit world in a, in a way that you know, I think a lot of it is lost in in the West. But I went and saw an oracle that just said to me, "Look, the Balinese, yeah, Bali will always be a home for you, and you need to come back here every now and then just to really resource yourself. But the Balinese don't need you. You're you're needed in the West right now." And that that sort of was what tipped me over the edge, and you know, I booked a booked a ticket probably the next day. That's mad. And from an as an outsider. Like you've got this this big business, you specialise in what I imagine like health and safety is like black and white. So yeah. for you to go and visit 
like an oracle. It really like, it surprises me. I know I know I don't know you very well, Ian, but like yeah. I, I, it shocked me that. So that's that's, that's interesting. Yeah, and and that yeah, you know, just living there, particularly in in Ubud, like there's there's some parts of Bali that are that are very touristy and and tend to avoid, but a place like Ubud is is there's just something even more magical about it, and just being open to. Um, you know, going to a cacao ceremony or practicing shamanic breath work or, you know, there's so many different modalities that people are practicing there. It's a real home for yoga and meditation. And um, I would, you know, I was certainly open prior to going, but, but to go there and actually live and, and immerse myself, uh, it's it's hard to avoid. So, um, yeah, while on the surface, I might look pretty rugged and <laughs> <laughs> it, that, just living there really helped me develop my own connection to, you know, whatever you want to call it, source, you know, whatever it is. Um, just knowing that there is a magic world, there is a magic realm that we're just, I've, I'd certainly been disconnected from and, and or would certainly open my eyes to that. That's great. So I know um, Indonesia, particularly Bali, is is huge for digital nomads now. And yeah. like a lot of people are flocking the to like take advantage of like cheaper rents, nicer lifestyle. Uh, did you see that that change much while you were there? Like, and it's hard to say. Like, it's it's spoiling it, but is it? Did you did you see a change in, in places that when, while you were living there? Um, not so much the period of time that I was living there, but it's certainly the the whole digital nomad thing. It's it's such an appealing place to be, and in fact, the Indonesian government's now looking to introduce digital nomad visas. Because there's a lot of people there that, um, whilst they do contribute to to the local economies, there, you know, there, there's a lot of red tape in terms of getting visas, um, and you have to do these visa runs every couple of months, and it, yeah. and it just becomes a, a challenge. And it really, again, the and pandemic. And you're probably not paying taxes either, like because oh, of the exactly. red tape. Uh, yeah, you might be spending your money there and like eating yeah. there and drinking there, but that that valuable tax money is is going elsewhere. Exactly, and and that's what the government sort of finally come around to, to, to seeing is that um, you know, rather than giving them a couple of months visa, let's let's legitimise this process and, and they're floating the idea of five-year digital nomad visas to try and attract more and more people. Uh, and at the same time, you know, they will then be legitimate in the system and, and pay tax. Now, the, the tax rate is still very good. And so it's still a very appealing place to, to set up residence. And, and that's, you know, again, why... I would choose this as my place of residence. Yeah. So what would be your must-do or must-see, must-recommend activity in, in Indonesia and Bali? Yeah, and, and I'll, I'm, I'm limited to Bali, the island of Bali. I mean, there's, I think, 17,500 islands in Indonesia. And the other appealing part about if this was one of those places where I could only travel for the rest of my life. There is a lot of islands to yeah. explore, and that really appeals to me. Um, some of some of my favorite experiences like hiking Mount Agung, the, okay. the the big volcano there. There I remember I remember thinking, oh, it's not that big. And you know, I've hiked a few mountains in my time and this will be a, a pretty easy. So we sort of set off at 10 o'clock at night and and I also didn't think it would be that cold. Um, and so I didn't really prepare too well for it. But it was more it was a much more challenging hike than I, I imagined, and it was freezing up the top. I just remember being so cold, 
and we had this guy that came up in he was wearing a t-shirt and a sarong and and no shoes and he played the guitar the whole time up and there's the rest of us sort of scrambling to get up this very sort of loose surface um you know hillside and there's this guy playing guitar and and it just blew me away um that was a to get up there for sunrise it was just really beautiful it was it just it really blew me away that God then did this ceremony, um, you know, sort of to, to the sun. And it was just a, a really, really beautiful experience. So hiking Mount Agung, um, it was, is a top one for me. There's a, there's a much easier hike Mount Batur, but I would, if you're up for a challenge to see the sunrise in Mount Agung was just absolutely magic. Okay. That sounds, that sounds good. Mm. And what would be your must do or a food memory that comes back to you must eat? or a food memory that comes back to you when thinking about Indonesia? Yeah, and, and one thing I would highly recommend is doing a cooking class with the Indonesians and, and learning some of those. They've got spectacular cuisine. And the, the two ones that, that I love is, is a dish called soto ayam, and it's this um, sort of chickeny, uh, how do you describe it, um, sort of long tail. It's a, it's a spicy chicken soup with, with noodles. And it's just delicious. I, I love it. And then the other one's nasi kampur, and it's a bit of a mixture of veggies and and chicken, and um, just absolutely delicious. I could eat that all day, every day. Sounds good. Mm. Great. So, the Indonesia would be your country number one. Is there anything else you'd like to say about it before we move on? Uh, no, it's just a it's a magic place, and highly, highly recommend it. Great. So, what would be your uh, travel bubble destination number two. This one, when I when I look at the business space, I I had a few options, and and well, Japan, Canada, Singapore were all sort of good options. I'm going to go with North Korea, um, just because I've, I've been there a few times, and I, I'm, I'm going to describe it as a as an up and comer. I think it's on the verge of, of being an emerging market uh, and, and somewhere that is, one, it's a fascinating place it, every time I go. I've been four times now and it just blows me away every time. Um, and I'd really love to see, I'd, I'd really love to see, you know, peace brought to the, the Korean Peninsula and, and really help North Korea open up in, you know, a, a way that they're comfortable with. Um, but really bring them into the, the Western, well, not the Western world, but the international community. Yeah. So how do you go about getting in, like getting work in North Korea? Like, who were you approached by? Well, I, I've got so many questions in. Yeah. It, and <laughs> <laughs> it, well, I'll tell you how I got there. Um, in, in 2017, I was, I don't know, I was just scrolling through Facebook and all of a sudden saw this ad for, come teach entrepreneurship in North Korea, which, as you can imagine, sort of stood out to me. And I thought I'd always wanted to go to the country, but I'd never I'd never really particularly wanted to go as a tourist because I thought it would always be a bit showy and, and yeah. you wouldn't really get it to understand the place. And so um, it turns out there was a, there was a Singapore-based non-government organisation called Chozon Exchange that had set up um, a the ability to go and teach entrepreneurship there as a, as a way to try and help create a healthier civil society in the country and, and also give, you know, foreign business people a, a just a very unique perspective on the country. 
Um, and so I saw that and thought that's got me written all over it and, and signed up. And between, and we actually, you pay for the opportunity to go. Um, and, and between registering for it and actually going, things between North Korea and the US really escalated. And um, Trump was talking about fire and fury and calling him the rocket man and, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And it was really at the height of that, that, that I went in late 2017. Um, so it was quite tense, my first experience there. But again, it was one of those experiences similar to going to Libya. What I, you know, what I read about and largely what we're showing in the Western media versus the reality on the ground were just so different. And I just, I fell in love with the, yeah, just the idea of being able to make a difference to people that just come from such a different world. Um, yeah, ultimately, yeah, they're, they're just like you and me. They just want yeah. a better life for themselves. You know, they're portrayed in a particular way. Like they are born into a very weird system where the only way to really get ahead is by loyalty to this, you know, largely to this regime. And, but it, again, you know, they just want a better life for themselves. And, um, you know, we, we sort of help with that in, in uh, helping develop, you know, enterprise as a, as a way to do that. Yeah. So did you find like any of these like stereotypes or cliches that you may have like previously associated with North Korea were in fact the case? Uh, not well, you know, how they're perceived. I mean, we see the big military parades and, and, you know, that sort of stuff. There's, there's, while, while I didn't necessarily see any parades, I certainly saw, there's military everywhere, and, and one of the rules that we have, we, we, we're allowed to take photos except of construction and military, and that's hard sometimes because there's military people everywhere. But it just in terms, they're very, they, they come across as very stoic, and there's a, there's a general distrust of Westerners because um, they don't necessarily differentiate between an American, Australian, a, a, a Brit, you know, yeah. we're West. And, but the more, those are people walking on the street, but when you actually get to engage with them on a, on a one-to-one level, they, again, they, they, they're just like you and me. Yeah, yeah. People. <laughs> people right? yeah. Yeah. So the whole experience was so humanizing in that regard. So mm. where did you get to go and see? Cause you hear the people like I was interested in doing the, Pyongyang Marathon at one point yeah. um, and that gives you good access to like certain areas but as a as a teacher I go in there to like do business kind of, kind of thing did that give you access to certain areas that you might not have been able to go otherwise uh, it certainly does and, and like you mentioned with the Pyongyang Marathon that is as a tourist the best way to see the country because you you get to you, know, you, you get to go to parts of the city that you just wouldn't otherwise. Um, in terms of we, we typically, we, we run three workshops a year. So ever since my first experience, again, I just I think it's making such a difference. Um, so I, I became like the workshop coordinator and we run typically three workshops a year, two in Pyongyang and then another one in Pyongsong, which is about 45 minutes out of the capital. And it's a very important trading hub. So there's no there's no freedom of movement and things we take for granted, um, like your ability to go from 
Cornwall to London, for example, it's just not available to everyone there. You've had you have to have a certain class level to yeah. be able to travel to Pyongyang. It's very much pitched as the mecca. Uh, it's where you want to live, and to get there, you have to show increasing loyalty to the regime. So Pyongyang becomes this very important trading hub, um, and we we work with a basically the Science Institute there. And it's a, it's a fascinating sort of little area, um, especially economic zone. So it's, so it's you know, they're trying to promote a lot more business. And we've worked closely with the Institute there to try and set up um, like a, a, yeah, a hub, a hub of entrepreneurship. And a few years ago, we bought um, some key people from that, from that area to come to Singapore to do almost like a, a three-month mini MBA program and, and had all these foreign uh, business experts teach them business principles. And to maybe just give some context for that, the, the, there's been a lot more economic focus the last few years. It's, it's almost like a dual policy of military expansion, uh, which was particular, particularly predominant under Kim Jong-il. Um, but, but since Kim Jong-un took over, he really promised the people economic uh, prosperity. So there's been a, a, a dual focus on military and, and economy, and they're starting to legitimise small enterprise now, uh, whereas everything used to be state-owned. So the opportunity for someone to actually develop a business uh, is you know, sort of the first time a legitimate yeah. business. And make some serious money as well. Yeah, exactly. It's like when you at the end of the um, when the Iron Curtain fell. If yeah. you were the right right place, right person with that right business brain, you could make a lot of money. And exactly, and that, and that's why that's why I would go there because I I really do see that sort of opportunity. And uh, you know, if we get if peace could ever come to that region with the technological advancements of South Korea. Uh, and the the manpower of of you know North Korea, I think they could you know be a real player on the world scene. Um, it, and similar, like you say, with when the Iron Curtain came down, you look at places like Vietnam over the last few years as as those sort of emerging markets been been in the right place at the right time. There's just such an opportunity, and and I think North Korea um, sort of falls into that category. So these workshops that you do, are you still working in conjunction with the NGO or are you like, have you took that and ran? No, I'm still with the NGO. So, so very much part of Chosun Exchange and um, COVID's been challenging because of the inability to travel, but also the inability, um, only so many, you know, few people have access to the internet there. So even communicating with our partners in the country can be a challenge at times. And where you and I would jump on a Zoom, you know, it's just not possible. So We've developed a few programs, particularly for North Koreans outside of the country who do, do have access and will eventually sort of go back to the country. Um, but we're, we're, we're almost we're largely waiting until travel is available. Yeah. And I think, I think North Korea will probably be the last place to open up because right now they see anyone coming to the country as, as a bit of a threat. You know, unfortunately, years and years of malnourishment and not the best health healthcare system in the world if things you know if the pandemic took off there it'd, it'd be devastating yeah so rightly so that you know they, they won't open up until um you know the risk is is zero so if someone was listening and said they wanted to get involved following your footsteps and get involved with that program 
yeah. would they have to be have like a, a business brain, be an entrepreneur, business owner uh, to get involved? Oh, to a degree, they've certainly got to have speciality in some area. They don't necessarily have to be a business owner or anything like that. But if they've got a, we use a framework called the business model canvas, where we look at things like marketing and look at, um, you know, distribution and you know, supply chain and, and just aspects of an enterprise that need to consider to make it successful. So we try to bring a, a bit of a cross section of expertise um, we're very careful. A lot of people, a lot of journalists and religious zealots try and get in through our doors as well, which which we unfortunately don't, you know, we don't allow that because that would go against the wishes of our partners in the country. So, yeah. yeah. Have you, are you familiar with the documentary called The Mule? I've, just, I've recently am, watched yeah. it, so it's quite fresh in my mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, one of the takeaways I got from it, I ignore like the, the dodgy things that might have gone on. One of my takeaways was that they they seem to be like desperate for foreign investment and very open to foreign investment, and that's what I got got from that documentary. Like they want people to come and invest and start yeah. businesses and, and cooperations with North Korea. Yeah, they, and they really do. You, you're exactly right. And even in our workshops, where some of the like they're very entrepreneurial by nature, and and that's largely been driven out of survival when. When the Iron Curtain, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, who were their sort of biggest supporters, um, particularly in terms of food and so on, and a few years later they had these devastating famines that that wiped out up to a you know a few million people, and the and the ones that survived were largely the ones that were able to just trade and barter uh, for anything, um, and this whole sort of culture emerged, and and these grey markets started to develop and. Over time, and it was largely driven by by women, because in their society, if you're if you're a man, um, you're either in the army, you go to you got ten year conscription, or right. you're in a government job, and the only ones that are exempt from that are married women, and so because they're very patriarchal, and you know they're meant to be in the home and so on, and so these these women started going to markets and just trading whatever they could. And this culture really emerged where all of a sudden the, those people doing that were making more money than in their, than their, their government jobs. So every, everyone there, even if they're in government, they like they have a second income because the government's, you know, it's not enough to really support them. Um, so they're incredibly entrepreneurial and we see these quite amazing products that they come up with and they just, they sometimes lack the, the education to t- how do you take a great product and turn it into something valuable for the market? And a lot of them have international scope, but we we just focus on the local market because that's that's the rules right now. But there is a real want and desire to, to trade internationally. You're absolutely correct with them. Okay, great. So what would be your must-do, must-see thing, activity in North Korea? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's just so much because everything's everything's just you know different. Yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of in terms of must do, and I can't speak from personal experience because I, I keep missing it. But the um, the mass games, I've seen them train for these things. These are these massive sort of gymnastic um, performances they put on at the Mayday Stadium, which is I think I think the biggest stadium in the world. Is this thing right. is huge. Um, and, and just incredible uh, display of colour and light and 
like it just looks spectacular. Now they train for this for months leading up to the event. So I've seen them practicing, but all, all my friends and colleagues who've been to that just said it's it's one of the most mind blowing things you'll see. The other thing is is doing the Pyongyang Marathon. Uh, simply one, you know, to do a marathon, but the experience that our friends talk about when they run into the stadium, you've got a hundred thousand Koreans cheering you on. Like they said, you'll never get that anywhere else in the world. It's, it's just so surreal. Um, yeah, that's on my list of things to do. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. It was a bit cost prohibitive back in the back in the day, but I'm sure yeah. it, when things open up, it might cost will slowly come down. Um, what about in terms of uh, cuisine or food? Yeah, it's it's quite akin to to South Korean, so familiar with that. So a lot of kimchi, kimchi sort of the the staple and. There's this kimchi pancake that they do that that is just incredible. One okay. one of the hard one of the hard things to really gauge is because uh, we get fed like absolute kings there, and I don't think that's you know how the locals necessarily mm. eat. Um, but yeah, the kimchi pancake. Uh, I love the bibimbap that they do. Uh, bulgogi, sort of the the beef. Um, yeah, some some really good. Oh, there's they're, what they're sort of famous for. I'm just looking. I just made a note here because I struggle to pronounce this one. It's called rangmyeon, which is this cold noodle, and it's almost seen as a bit of a, a bit of a, not so much a delicacy, but um, you eat that on special occasions. Now, we went to to eat it. I'm not gonna. I didn't write home about that one. It was it was nice, <laughs> but cold noodles aren't quite my thing. But that's. Yeah, that's that's what you want to eat if you go to North Korea. Okay, great. Well, North Korea is your country number two. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Any stories or anything you'd like to add? Uh, there's plenty of stories. I think you know, I had probably the most surreal moment of my life there where we'd been invited to, because of the work we do, It's we we get to meet some of the diplomats and you know people who, who actually live there for long periods of time. And it's always fascinating and it was the anniversary of uh, North and South Korea's uh, first sort of meeting after, you know, since the Korean War, basically. And to, to honour that, we got invited to meet with the, um, the Minister for the Committee for Cultural Relations with Foreign Countries. Oh, yeah, him. And, and he reports directly to Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un. And so we thought, why don't we, you know, present him with a bouquet of flowers that he, and a letter of good health that he can present to the Supreme Leader. So my colleague and I went along and met with the minister and it was, you know, it was very formal and very, um, you know, impressive sort of in building and had some general chit-chat and presented him with some flowers for the, for the chairman and sort of walked away from that meeting. And I just remember my colleague just turning around and saying to me, you know, I, don't, I don't know what decisions I've made in my life that have me now sending flowers to, you know, to, a, to a dictator. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. It was very, very surreal. Um, but it, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of going and experience somewhere for yourself rather than get these preconceived ideas or notions about how someone is. You know, go go there, check it out for yourself, and then form an opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So two countries so far, Ian, you've had Indonesia and North Korea. What yep. would be your travel bubble destination number three? 
I'm going with South Africa. Okay. Yeah. Uh, spent yeah four years living in South Africa, and and it's when I think about all the places I've I've lived, um, Cape Town is is somewhere where I'd I'd definitely go back to live. It, there's just something so incredibly beautiful about it. It's quite a it's very unique in that it it consistently gets voted you know in the top beautiful cities in the world and it is it's it's absolutely stunning and at the same time it's it's up there in terms of murder uh capitals as well so there's this energy about the place that i just love it's it's vibrant um the people are amazing i've got some of my my best friends uh are there and i just love them to bits and it was again an experience uh growing up in in perth and when apartheid collapsed in you know, 94, a lot of South Africans came to Perth to the point it got dubbed Little Pretoria for a while. <laughs> and, and initially it was such a, a different culture and they sort of came across as a bit arrogant. Um, and so I didn't have a great perception of South Africans to begin with, but to actually go there, the people are incredible. Um, and I just had some of my... You know, I think back now with some of the, the best experiences of my life living there to wake up every day and I look out the front and there's beautiful Atlantic Ocean, beautiful but freezing, never been in colder water in my life. Um, and then to, to look around the corner and there you've got one of the, the seven natural wonders of the world, Table Mountain, just overlooking the city. It's just a stunning place. Yeah, it, it, I've never been to South Africa, but it, like you say, Cape Town just it just looks beautiful and it's one of those places that i want to visit um you mentioned it then like you've got this element of danger how, how does it feel actually living there does it does it feel dangerous like are you worried about when like we go into the shop or go into a bar or i i don't know i i lived in haiti for a while and haiti's like there's always that frisson of danger like you're always on Always on a bit of edge because because of stories that you hear and because of things that you see, but how was it? What was that like in Cape Town? Yeah, there there is that edge, and there's yeah, you know, there's certain places you just wouldn't necessarily necessarily go, um, and certainly yeah, you know, there's some places you wouldn't go at after dark, for example. And it took a little while to get used to. Again, growing up in in Australia, where everything's open, you can walk up to your neighbour's you know front door. Whereas in South Africa, there's a lot of compound living, there's a lot of barbed wire and, and a lot of fences everywhere. And I think I was I was largely lucky relative to most of the people I know. You know, they, they've either been held up or you know, been mugged in, in some way. Um, it, it's a there there is that element there, um, but I think. You, you tend to attract that as well sometimes, um, but yeah, there's just, there's places you you wouldn't necessarily go. I think for me, the the beauty far outweighs the the danger element, um, and I don't I don't necessarily blame people. You know, when you look at things from a systemic perspective, yeah. everyone's just sort of trying to do their best to to survive. Trying to survive, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but I'm, I'm reading uh, an old book at the minute, uh, King Solomon's Minds, and like it's just got me the, got me excited about going to Africa and exploring and having a bit of an adventure. It's yeah. quite a hard book to read at night because you just you like you're up for it then and you want to go and travel and go and see the world and explore. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely a place I want to get to. Um, what would be your 
must do must see activity in South Africa. It's, and, and one of the things that appeals to me about South Africa so much is there's just so much to do and particularly so much to do in nature. And so there's obviously a lot of hiking. There's so many mountain ranges around there. Um, one of my greatest sort of things that I did was called the Three Peaks, which is in, in the city you've got three main peaks, Devil's Peak, Table Mountain and Lion's Head. And so there's a challenge to, to do them all in one go. Um, took, took me about seven and a bit hours with my good buddy, Marty. Um, we managed to knock that, knock that off. But to, just to go and climb Table Mountain's absolutely spectacular. An even better climb is around the Cape Point where you can you see the city off in the distance, but you, you see where the, you know, the Atlantic and the Indian Oceans come together. And um, you know, it's just a, a stunning the whole mountain range just goes all the way back to the city. Um, that was really beautiful. My favourite thing, though, is is doing doing all the the windy roads and the mountains on motorbikes. And okay. I was I was fortunate in that I had a good friend um, that ran a, a motorbike shop there, uh, Cape Bike Travel for all your motorbike needs in okay. Cape Town, and, and he used to get all these um, bikes in that. When you, when you rent out motorbikes, you've got to put so many kilometres on them before you're legally allowed to rent them out. Oh, really? So, yeah, so he'd call me up and and say, look, can you can you take this new, you know, 1200 GS BMW, put 500 kilometres on it, and I would just take off and go. There's so many just incredible roads and, and mountain passes to do around Cape Town. I, I personally think it's the greatest way to see the city. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Okay. There's so much, whether you want to dive with sharks or I took my mum, my 70-year-old mum at the time, skydiving in Cape Town. <laughs> she absolutely loved it. And, um, yeah, there's obviously, obviously there's a lot of safaris, not so much in Cape Town, but in South Africa. Um, and I went on many, many just incredible safaris there. In terms of Cape Town, there's one experience that I love and it sort of ties in with the what to eat there. There's a place in Guguletu called Mazzoli's and it's it's basically like this butcher shop and you go in and just you know order what meat you want and they, they cook it up on the bra there and it's just the atmosphere, the the people, there's just such this you know, such a vibrancy. Um, I just absolutely love the place. Okay, that's good. Mazzoli's. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love food recommendations that are tangible. Like yeah. go to this place, go and drink at that bar. Like yeah. go and do this. I like that. So I put that on my list of places to visit when I'm there. <laughs> yeah, Mazzoli's is a good one. Um, and as Australian, it's hard it's hard for me to say this, but South <laughs> Africans do a much better barbecue than we. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I've got a very good South African friend. He came on actually episode three or four, Robbie, and his life revolves around the braai. He's always talking about braai, like everything's like a quick braai. <laughs> and it, yeah, it really does. Um, and it happens in Australia as well and, and other places, but there's something so unique about it in South Africa. Um, yeah, the particularly, you know, the, just the men forming around the, the barbecue, and it's not always the men, but that's typically how it plays out. Uh, and it's such a, just such a great bonding experience. Um, yeah, I love that part of it. Yeah. So there are your three countries, Ian. Have you got anything else to say about South, South Africa before we move on? Um, well, just in terms, I mean, there's so much great game meat to eat there. 
Um, and you know, whether it's I love bourgeois, the you know, the, the big round sausage or uh, kudu, uh, ostrich, you know, those sort of gamey meats are, are beautiful. The one thing that I absolutely loved there was this thing, um, milk tart. And there's milk tart and cook sisters, which is this uh, sort of more sweet, uh, just absolutely delicious. I uh, got hooked on those things when I was living there. Okay. What's, what, kind, what kind of thing is it? Is it like condensed milk in a cake kind oh, of thing? Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. And the cook sisters like this pastry almost probably covered in sugar. I mean, it's terrible for you, but it tastes so good. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. Great. So those three travel bubble countries, Ian, what would be your wild card, which is a place, for some reason in the rules, they're letting you go to this place that you've never been to before? Yeah. I was tempted with this one to say uh, Russia, but... I'm actually, again, just going back to the way to structure it and, and looking at where I'd want to actually hold my assets. Uh, and I've come up with Belize as a country. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's there's good tax rates there. I, I've certainly learned uh, over time I'm much more favourable to warmer climates than the cold ones. And, you know, Belize just looks like this idyllic uh, spot that, is not as expensive as, you know, Bermuda or the Bahamas or somewhere like that. But this, I think it's got the second largest coral reef in the world. It's still pristine. Um, it just looks like a really, really magical place. Okay. Is Belize yeah. the one where everyone speaks English? And that's and that's the other part. They, yeah. they do speak English. So certainly one thing that uh, I'm, I'm not great with languages and I try. But there's just something just it never quite clicks with me. I've certainly had some funny experiences attempting and failing horribly trying to speak languages. I was I'll, I'll share one story when I was I got a job in the Congo and um, I sort of over embellished how good my French was and <laughs> I, I'd done schoolboy French and um, but I hadn't spoken it for years and so it had largely gone and so we landed landed in the Congo and, and they said, okay, you're running a workshop tomorrow for a, a hundred people. Can you do it in French? And I went, oh, <laughs> oh. And I said, I'll give it a shot. But, you know, if I run into trouble, is there a translator? I said, yeah, no problem. And so I get up there and I'm, you know, attempting my best French. And I, I lasted about five minutes. And I said, okay, can we get the translator up? I was getting all these confused looks. And eventually this guy comes and stands next to me and, so I start talking about safety and risk and, you know, a bunch of other stuff and then look at him to, to translate it and he just looked at me and just said, I cannot understand you. And he, he just <laughs> couldn't understand my Australian accent. So we had to get this British guy to stand next to me that would I would say it in Australia and he would translate it into the Queen's English and then the, French, the Congolese guy would say it in French. It was, <laughs> it was a long process. That's class. Uh, yeah. Triple triple the uh, time. Exactly. <laughs> right, amazing. So there are four countries, Ian. Um yeah. great choices. And I like I I like the your perspective and how you've how you've approached it. Uh, before you go, I'd like to ask you a few uh questions. Yeah. Ian, an all encompassing broad question, what would be your top travel tip? for someone about to go on traveling, see the world? 
my top travel tip is is really to just do it. Um, is to go there and be open minded and go and really immerse yourself. I think you know doing those sort of small couple of days here and there, but nothing against that sort of travel. But if you really want to go and find out about a place is go and immerse yourself for at least a month. Um, you know, go and you know, do the things the locals do, whether it's whether it's a cooking class or you know, just something to um, really understand the culture. It's for me, it's all about immersion. Yeah, there's always things you can find that are going on. That I was when I said the reason I said that I was looking at my memories yesterday on Facebook. And I was in Hong Kong like five years ago or six years ago today. Um, we went to the races in Hong Kong and like just doing something like that, it gets you, gets you out there. And like, it reminded me of going to the horse racing in Bangkok, which yeah. it's one of the only places you can legally gamble. Is it, is it the, uh, the horse racing? So you find all the taxi drivers, all these men every Saturday to go there and just spend all the money at gambling. And it's amazing. Like, I, when, when people came to visit me in Bangkok, I'd always take them to the the horse racing, and we'd yeah. go in the. It's like it used to be like fifty p to get in, and we'd go on like and just bet on whatever. We couldn't understand anything, but you'd have a really good time, have a beer and eat all the food, and like you feel like you're you're, you're straight in, like you're and straight into the into the culture and the the local way of life. Yeah, exactly, and and that's the best way to do it. Find those sort of find those opportunities to. Um, to really, you know, again, immerse yourself in that culture and, and see what the locals are doing. Yeah. Um, your um, profession, safety, all um, making people safe. Have you been in any danger, any dangerous situations on your travels? Yeah, I, I've, I've certainly, I've had a few and, and probably the ones that stand out to me most, you know, we talked about getting mugged in Cape Town and, and the one experience of that happening to me, and I was, I was out on a particular street and went to the ATM machine and was getting some cash out and I just felt this guy come up behind me, stick something in my back. Um, and, you know, he's obviously trying to mug me. Um, and I turned around, I think fueled by a couple of beers that I'd, that I'd had prior to him, I just, I just said to him, what, what are you doing, mate? you know, what's going on? Why are you trying to mug me? And I just started having a chat with the guy and he was this Nigerian guy, you know, and he's, he's had it pretty rough there as, as a refugee. There's, there's still a lot of discrimination uh, going on and just started talking to him. And we had a, we ended up having a great chat and he was telling me he's sort of being forced into, you know, selling drugs as a way to survive there. Um, and I <laughs> I eventually took him to a strip club just to give him an experience of something different yeah. and sort of got out of that whole situation without getting mugged um, and just gave him a, I don't know why I chose there. I thought that'd be fun for him. Um, it was just quite a, again, I look back at it now and think, what was I doing? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. So what was that first couple of seconds like? Was it tense? Oh, it's definitely tense. <laughs> I've learned over time, like I do with a lot of what we do is is largely coaching. Like I do a lot of training, but I do a lot of coaching as well. And particularly in countries where, uh, you know, the, the language, there's a language barrier. There's, we, we communicate so much through our bodies. 
And and I remember a couple of experiences. I was in Malta one time and was waiting. A couple of us went to the shops and I was waiting outside for my, my mates to come out. And this, this Maltese lady just came up to me and started having a conversation in Maltese. Now, I, I, don't, I don't speak Maltese, so I had no idea what she was saying. But just through body, um, you know, we, we spoke, inverted commas, for about five or six minutes. And I think she had the greatest conversation she's ever had in her life. Like she, <laughs> she was waving to me, saying goodbye and like thanking me. And I didn't say a word, but we, we just <laughs> communicate so much with our bodies. So going back to that experience, I mean, another close call for me was in Libya. And um, there was a couple of Libyans on board our vessel that wanted to do something that i I, I didn't want to let them do because it was so dangerous. They wanted to transfer to a, another vessel at three o'clock in the morning when we couldn't see anything. And so I wouldn't let them do it. Now, all of a sudden I had two irate Libyans just screaming at me in Arabic, threatening me, threatening to throw me in jail. And, and these guys carry a lot of weight. And so, again, I don't speak Arabic, but just to calm that situation down just through you know, who I was being and, and using body to calm that, that whole situation. That's something I've, I've learned over time. And a couple of those situations certainly highlighted, you know, why it's such a useful tool to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was listening to a, a guy the other day and he said, like raising the eyebrows is like, because it's so, you can do it from far away and it automatically like disarms someone or you can tell if they're a threat or if, like a friend or foe, just by do, doing the quick eyebrow raise. Exactly. Um, quite a good tip. Great. Um, Ian, I'm not sure if you're a materialistic person, but what would be the number one souvenir you've got from your travels? It's got to be something from North Korea. Um, well, there's a few other there's a few other souvenirs that I've got that, that I really adore. Um, I'll, and I'll, I'll speak to those first. Um my, my absolute favorite country that I've traveled to is actually Malawi and East Africa. It was, it was one of those places that sort of surprised me how much I enjoyed it there. And they call it the warm heart of Africa. I've, I've, I've never met a friendlier um, you know, group of people. They, they don't have much, yet they would give you the shirt off their back. They're, that's just the kind of people that they are. And so we went out on to this island in the little middle of Lake Malawi called Mumbo Island, and it was just spectacular. And there's a lot of hippos in that lake, not where we were, but all these hippo teeth sort of wash up on the island. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it took some hippo teeth. Um, and, it, you know, that's sort of special. But the, the thing that really struck me about Malawi was it's sort of known for really great wood products and wood carvings and my wife at the time really wanted a like a nice sort of fruit bowl for the table at home and so we we met with this guy who could who could make it for us and she came down there with you know a spec sheet and a drawing of what she looked you know what it wanted it to look like and it was maybe I don't know, 30 centimeters long and so he's now he's got all the information he needs great we'll be back here in a week yeah, no problem. And we go off to the island and then, then we come back and we meet with this guy and say, you know, it's almost ready for you. Um, you know, I've, I've, it's a really special project, this one. 
and he brings this this thing back the next day, and it is the size of a canoe. It was huge. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my wife's face; it was like a door just dropped. The thing, and how are we going to get this home? And it was the, it was such comedy at the airport. We, we like wrapped this thing up in plastic, and it was just. Yeah, it, it speaks to the Malawians. They're just such incredible people. That's amazing. Um, did you, so did you buy it in the end? Like, yeah, did it cost you a fortune? It, did, it didn't cost too much. Um, <laughs> but we often speak about the canoe every time. Yeah, I love that. But the, the one, the things that, that, you know, I sort of cherished the most was when I went to North Korea the first time, like I mentioned, there was sort of fire and fury and there was propaganda sort of everywhere, anti-US propaganda. And I was also at the time where, you know, Otto Warmbier, the, the American student, um, had been captured for, you know, stealing a, a poster and, um, you know, sort of the tragic tale there. And so I legitimately, you know, purchased some some of these posters and, and they're pretty intense, I've got to be honest. Um, but the next time I went back, you know, the groundwork was being laid for the the summit between the US and and North Korea. So all of this propaganda had gone. Um, and so that one's pretty special because you may never be able to get this ah, stuff again. That's cool. Uh, and then the other one is there's a book series called Anecdotes of Kim Jong-il's Life and three parts to this to this series. And it is some of the 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 greatest tales about the dear leader Kim Jong-il's life um, now whether they're fabricated or not yeah some of the some of the they're just they're just so incredible um, stories about you know the revered sacred birth on Mount Pektu and um, yeah he invented the hamburger and and all these he, you know played a round of golf and got 10 holes in one and yeah, they're just yeah. incredible I love them so yeah, I, I love that series of books. Okay, are they big books as well? Like, are they, are they padding them out? Like, yeah, uh, I mean, they're they're pretty. They're, there's a lot of stories. In yeah, there. okay. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So, great. Is there anything you think I've missed out, or anything you'd like to add before I let you go? Uh, I mean, there's there's such a such a you know, incredible world out there, and and. All, all I can say is um, go and explore it. Uh, I mean, there's, there's so many different places I could talk about here and there's places I want to go uh, that, you know, I certainly could have had on the list and there's places I, that I will go. But for, you know, for people listening, um, all I can say is go and explore, get off the beaten track, immerse yourself in the, in the culture and just traveling just broadens the perspective in 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 a way that that nothing really else does so go and have fun and explore ian where, where can you where if anywhere would you see yourself settling yeah that's a great question and, and it, it sort of brings the question of and something i've been asked and have been asking myself for a long time is is you know where's home and ultimately what i've what i've come to learn anyway is is home is where I am and where community is. And I, I, I don't necessarily know where I'd settle. I think I'm getting definitely at that point where I do want to settle. I know Bali will be a home, um, but I know there'll be somewhere in the West as well. 
um, whether it's Australia, whether it's the UK, somewhere else. Yeah. 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 Not really sure at this stage. Well, Ian, it's been fascinating. It's been lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for giving, giving us your time and sharing your stories with us today. You're welcome, Matty. Appreciate it, mate. Thank you. Cheers, mate. You have been listening to Travel Bubble with me, Matty Dias, and my guest, Ian Collins. If you like that episode, then go and give us a five-star rating on Apple. Click subscribe to Travel Bubble. Go and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Travel Bubble Podcast. And share the episode with your friends. If you think they like it, go and spread the word of Travel Bubble. But I really enjoyed that episode. I hope you did too. I think Ian's a great guy. I really got on well with him. Uh, it's the first time I'd spoken to him during that podcast. And I'm really glad that he got in touch. And he was right. He would make a, a good Travel Bubble guest. And he's like the perfect epitome of a Travel Bubble guest, in my in my opinion. He's been around. He's got some good stories to tell. He didn't mind sharing those stories. And he's been to some off-the-beaten-track places. And I just think it's a really good episode. And I like his approach to how he, he made those decisions uh, based on the countries. Like he didn't just go, oh, that's a nice country, I'll go there. He was a bit savvier in his, in his, in his approach. Yeah, I really like seeing that. Like People choosing the countries in different ways and for different reasons. And Ian did that. But now it's time for Travel Bubble Film Club. And I thought... I would have to choose the one that we mentioned in the episode, and that is The Mole, Infiltrating North Korea. And I'll read out the synopsis. A real-life undercover thriller about two ordinary men who embark on an outrageously dangerous 10-year mission to penetrate the world's most secretive and brutal dictatorship, North Korea. Now, I know Ian loves North Korea, and I really want to go and visit it, and I'd love to do it alongside Ian, but this is like a, we mentioned it in the episode, it's a it's a bit of a different take on North Korea. And it's, you see some certain things that, like access all areas, it's quite fun actually. And it's on BBC iPlayer, uh, I know that much, so you can go and check it out on there. But do give it a watch and let me know what you think. And if you have any Travel Bubble Film Club recommendations, if you if there's anything that you think, oh, Matty would like this, or the, li- the Travel Bubble listeners would like this, do get in touch and I'll watch it and I can recommend that going forward. But that's it for now. That's episode 26, Flowers to Kim Jong-un. Like I say, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, Travel Bubble. Every little helps. It goes a long way. I've been Matty Dyers. My guest this week has been Ian Collins. And you have been listening. I'll be back next week for another excellent Travel Bubble episode. But in the meantime, goodbye.